Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Any notion of reaching across these divides is seen as compromise, is seen as selling out. And yet, what experience in other countries have shown and not just the Mandela's and many others, is, you know, we have to find a way to bridge this. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a podcast that reimagines citizen as a verb, not a legal status. This season is all about how we practice democracy. What can we get rid of? What can we invent? And how do we change the culture of democracy itself? We're leaving the theoretical clouds and hitting the ground with inspiring examples of people and institutions that are showing us new ways to govern ourselves. Throughout season four, we've spent a lot of time dreaming up and defining what a culture of democracy can look and feel like. And that collective vision is beautiful and motivating. But to build the culture we want, we also need to face the one we've got. And right now, I think that culture is conflict. Our democracy is based on this extreme version of in-group, out-group. We don't just disagree, we dehumanize. And I'm not a both sides kind of person. I think the right has done a lot more of this, but I've experienced it from the left too. And I know that nobody's got a monopoly on our garbage culture. 
We've all become more deeply entrenched in our differences, and many of us don't see or don't want to see a path toward being in community with people on the other side. Throw in guns, sensational media, and a political system that rewards outlandishness, and the division we experience looks much more like a feature than a bug. Listen, sometimes I wish everyone I disagreed with would just read that article I sent them and realize how wrong they are. Other times, I find myself asking if we can just split the country in half. Call it a day we tried and we move on separately. But community cannot be defined by total alignment on everything. That's not community. That's a cult. And we're trying to live together better here. That's the mission. And that living together requires living with an incredible amount of difference. We've been talking a lot about bringing democracy home. But it's hard to practice democracy at home when there are members of our families we can't talk to because they've been sucked into conspiracy, because they're part of a dehumanizing political culture, or because their opinions and mere presence feel so opposed to our own that it's hard to practice anything with them. But if we stop trying and just accept that this is the way things are, this division will only get worse. I must confess that I have this fear. I fear and I feel the possibility of truly escalated armed conflict along politically divided lines in this country, something we haven't experienced en masse, you know, since our Civil War. And we're not currently in that state. We're not living through that literally right now. But it's a nightmare many of us carry. And it's an actual lived reality that other people around the world have gone through quite recently. Tim Phillips and his organization, Beyond Conflict, have been facilitating conversations between the victims and perpetrators of extreme violence and harm for over 30 years. I reached out to hear how they've helped people work through life-altering conflict so we can gain some insights into how we avoid the path that Rwanda, Northern Ireland, and so many other countries have already been down. After the break, my first of two conversations with Tim Phillips, which took place a few weeks after the January 6th insurrection. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is over. The Shy returns May 10th on Paramount+, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash TheShy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Tim, thank you so much for spending time with me and with us. And I'm here with you in part because I had a great experience with your organization through a gathering in downtown Los Angeles a few years back. And the specifics are no longer with me, but the emotion is my mind felt almost literally blown. I've done a lot of work around race and people feeling disconnected from each other and polarized. And there was something your facilitators did that helped us all see the world a little differently. So I just want to take this personal selfish opportunity to thank you for that experience. Thank you for training people, not just you, to do some of this work. Uh, And thanks again for making time. I'd love to start, Tim, with uh, a more personal question. Can you tell me something about yourself that surprises you? Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. And um, surprises me is... Maybe this is getting very personal, but I've been doing this work internationally for over 30 years, and I still struggle with feeling agency in this work. And it surprises me, but it also reflects on the challenge of the work I think we both are trying to do, which is how do you give people agency in this world? How do you give people a sense that they can really become agents of their own personal lives, but of the people around them? And... You know, because we're coming up on 30 years and most of our work was international, in the last five years started working here in the United States, I really started reflecting on the work I've done internationally to bring it home to this country. And I started really thinking about what allowed me to go overseas in my late 20s was I knew what exclusion felt like. I knew what humiliation felt like. I knew what feeling less than equal felt like. And that, in a sense, gave me an emotional connection to the difficulty of this work. And I think thinking about where we are as a country and the challenges we face has also been a reflection on my own journey. Can I uh, press you on the humiliation that you are familiar with, which sounds like it's helped you do this work. What was that for you? Well, I grew up the youngest of six children, uh, grew up in a housing project here in Boston, what was used to be called veterans housing. I didn't like the fact that we lived there because I was being taunted. I was being judged. Often hearing parents will say to their son I was in school with, why are you hanging out with that kid from the projects? And so that really shaped a part of me to feel, you know, I know what this shit feels like. But also I had a mother who said, no, you live in Buckingham Palace. (laughs) And years later, I I saw the real Buckingham Palace. And I said to my mother, I took her on a trip to London with my sisters. I said, let me just show you this ain't Buckingham Palace where we grew up. But the point is, is that, you know, I had both an upbringing that knew what exclusion 
and humiliation and fear felt like. But I also had, like many people, parents who said, this isn't what defines you as a human being in your family, in your community. But to your point about humiliation, I remember when I started going overseas in the late 80s, early 90s, particularly at the end of the Cold War, when I would meet these dissidents who are now serving in government or leaders of journalism or civil society organizations, they knew what it felt like through a different lens, which is to be a victim, to keep your head down, to feel like you're always on guard and you don't really belong. And it was just really an eye-opener for me about how this manifests itself on a human experience and not just defined by the country we grew up in. For, for someone who's never heard of Beyond Conflict, what is it? So it's an organization that started in 1991 when I had a chance to go to Central and Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War and had a chance to meet, as I mentioned earlier, some of these dissidents who are now running these post-communist countries. And I remember asking them, how do you deal with your past? How are you dealing with the legacy of repression or dictatorship, what it did to individuals and communities? And the response was, well, that's what we talk about amongst ourselves, but that's not the help we're getting right now. Because at the end of the Cold War, we were getting help to write constitutions, build new democratic institutions, design market economies. Nobody can understand what we've gone through. We're being asked to manage these new governments and transitions, and we don't know where to get this help. And so that led me to this simple, what I thought, one-off conference notion of bringing together these new leaders of these post-communist countries, but with people who themselves had been through a transition from dictatorship to democracy. And in 1991, you know, the examples were Argentina, Chile, there was a process in a couple of African countries, Spain after Franco, denazification in Germany. And so I had said to some folks, you guys should do a special session, bring in these new leaders of these post-communist countries, but do it not with self-described experts, but people from these other countries that struggled with these transitions, who never imagined that they could have come out the other side, almost like a big support group. And so what started as a one-off conference became a second and third, but there was a real growing interest in how do we learn from the experience of others? How do we deal with our past? And of course, at the end of the Cold War, you not only had what happened in Eastern Europe, but the beginning of a peace process in Northern Ireland, or the Central American Peace Accords, or the beginning of a negotiated transition in South Africa. And then on the flip side, you had the disintegration of Yugoslavia and so forth. And so this whole period became ripe for work, not only about how do you build democracy, but how do you deal with these countries that are coming out of brutal past? And so for these 30 years, we have worked in probably 75 countries with this notion of shared experience, meaning bringing in people to model as former enemies what change could look like. Do you remember the moment you became interested in conflict resolution? Well, I think actually in late 80s, 1987, I was uh, watching the Super Bowl at the home of uh, a woman who's sort of well-known, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and her husband Richard Goodwin at the time. DKG. Yeah, and I knew her and her husband through some work in a political campaign. And there was Bob Dole, a Senate Majority Leader, and he had flown to Managua. Reagan was president to criticize and ridicule the Sandinista government, and then got back on his plane and flew home. And I remember seeing this in between the Super Bowl sort of innings. And I remember thinking, what just happened here? Why did he not go and actually see the leaders? Who was he playing to? What's actually going on in the region? And Dick Goodwin had been the author of the Alliance for Progress as a speech for JFK. 
And so he had a deep tie to the region. And I remember just speaking to the two of them and saying, this is pretty incredible that you have one of the biggest issues on the foreign policy agenda of the United States. And people are just sort of playing politics for domestic purposes here in the United States. Can we understand this better? And so I ended up organizing a trip to Central America with Doris Goodwin and others to see firsthand what was going on. And then I ended up meeting the Sandinista leadership at the time of Nicaragua. I met the Contras in Costa Rica, the FMLN guerrillas of El Salvador meeting in Nicaragua because it was safe. And then people from the other side in other settings. And it was just mind-blowing. And it was a huge eye-opener to not only the region, but the nature of conflict and the fact that people can learn from each other. As sort of kumbaya as that sounds, but that was really at the core. You set up this mentor program, this support group of people who've been through something like this before for those who are new to the process, uh, democracy sponsors, if you will. Where did that support group idea come from? Were people seated in a circle holding candles? <laughs> no, but... Um... You know, I think that's the nature. You're a very creative individual, human being, right? Creativity just sort of emerges, right? And in this context, it just struck me that sitting in these rooms, whether it be a workshop, a conference, or sitting around a dinner table with people who are struggling with even the notion of sitting across the table from their enemy, and having from South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, who's now president, or Rolf Meyer, who is the chief negotiator for de Klerk, come into a group of Protestant par former paramilitary leaders in Belfast and say, you know, we're here now as friends. We just negotiated about a year ago the end of apartheid in South Africa. And we want to ask you, what is making it so difficult for you to imagine change here? And you would hear these people across the divide in Northern Ireland saying, if they could do it in South Africa, why can't we do it here? You know, if they could make peace with their enemy, then why is it we're struggling to even imagine sitting in the same room with these people? Uh, I've read too many newspapers over time, so I kind of know a lot of these names you've dropped. But could you explain for someone who may not have heard of it, what was going on in Northern Ireland? So um, the Northern Ireland conflict lasted about 30 years, starting in the late 60s, literally 30 years until 1998. And over 3,500 people were killed, many of them innocent civilians. And the equivalent in this country would be a million civilians being killed in the United States. And if you were Catholic, you viewed the conflict as a legacy of centuries of repression by the British government in one form or another. If you were Protestant, many of them thought of this conflict as a 30-year aggravated crime wave. And so you had really diametrically opposed views of what the nature of the conflict was. Middle-class, affluent Catholics tended to join, if they joined a political party, the Social Democratic Labor Party, led by John Hume. They wanted eventual unification with Ireland, but were willing to do it politically and not through armed conflict or resistance. But often more working class Catholics who lived in many of the poorer communities were known as Irish Republicans, and they tended to support Sinn Féin, and many of them joined and supported the Irish Republican Army and felt it was a legitimate resistance to colonial repression. And their view was, we couldn't wait for unification. It has to happen now. And if we have to use armed resistance to get it, we will. And then on the other side, you know, you had two mainstream unionist or Protestant political parties, the Democratic Ulster Unionist Party and the UUP, Ulster Unionist Party. One was sort of more 
middle class, which is the UUP. DUP was led by Ian Paisley, and they wanted to preserve their British identity. Protestants were British, and they were going to defend it. And the working class equivalent of Sinn Féin and the IRA were the loyalist paramilitary parties and their two armed wings. And they ended up killing more people than the IRA did. And I mentioned a friend of mine, David Irvine, who was a loyalist paramilitary leader. And I remember taking him to not only the, the Balkans, but to Columbia to meet with the ELN and the FARC and others over the years. And he really connected with them because even though he was white Protestant from Northern Ireland, he was a working class socialist, as you would say, but somebody who said that we took up arms to defend a community that we thought was under threat. But he said, we went from defending our community, in other words, feeling that we had to kill to live, then to living to kill. And he said, something about a conflict like that takes over our psyche and our community and the narratives that you wake up a decade later and saying, you know, we're living to kill. This is what we know. And so where it ended up is the Good Friday Agreement brought them together, but it did get to that point of resolving these underlying differences. Wow. Thank you for that, Tim. Most of us, uh, we really didn't know the details of that conflict. And I think uh, as Wikipedia, Tim, uh, you did a good job of breaking that down. So I, I want to know when, uh, when you bring these leaders together, were there trust falls, Tim? What's the vibe of those gatherings? If it's the first gathering, it's often very tense. I'll give an example. After the signing of the Dayton Peace Accords, I was asked by Richard Holbrook if I could bring together in London the leaders of the three communities in Bosnia, Serb, Croat, and Muslim. I mean, the Dayton Peace Accords forced a sort of peace agreement, but in many ways, those communities were not done fighting each other, and there was such profound anger. And so we ended up having this gathering in London, and in the beginning, we had the three communities come in, and the last ones to take the seat were the Serb leaders of Bosnia. They called themselves Republika Srpska. They were kind of a proto-fascist state, frankly. And the Bosnian Muslim leaders saw them and walked out and said, we can't sit in the same room with these war criminals. And the people who got up and went to the Bosnian Muslims and said, please come back in, were the Palestinian and Israeli leaders who were in the room, who were women, a South African leader, and somebody from Belfast because they immediately understood how difficult this was. And they went on their own out into the lobby and spoke with them for about 45 minutes. And essentially, you know, were allies and said, please come in and sit in this room. We know how difficult this is. And in moments like that, you know, it's really difficult to imagine sitting in the same room with people who were involved in ethnic cleansing or involved in killing. And then in that sort of support group approach, when they're sitting there, at first they're like, how do these people from Northern Ireland or Bosnia or El Salvador connect with my experience? And then when you hear their stories and what they went through, then the differences start to fade away and people start to listen. And there was one moment when a man named David Irvine, who unfortunately has passed away, who was a Protestant paramilitary leader who spent a decade in prison for terrorism, was sitting there with these Kosovo leaders at a different conference. And they were shouting and yelling and saying, how do we learn from you? What do you have to share to our experience? And one person yelled out, we had artillery raining on Sarajevo or raining on Mostar. You didn't have any of that. 
And David looked over at a former IRA commander, and it was the first time the two of them had met. And they said, if we had access to artillery, trust us, we would have used them on each other. We used everything we could to destroy the other side. And you could see that the Bosnian and Kosovar leaders stop and begin to listen. And then somebody said, but aren't you a terrorist? And David said, you know, terrorists have to come from somewhere. And injustice is a powerful place to come from. And what would happen is you could see people start to pull back and listen and realize they're not here giving a history example. They're speaking in profoundly human terms in ways that resonate with their own experience and challenge. Mm, just gave me chills with that one. Um, you've mentioned and been a part of a lot of different gatherings of people who've been on opposite sides of issues, El Salvador, Northern Ireland, South Africa, the Bosnia region. What outcome has surprised you the most in all of this experience? Is there one that stands out? One of my great honors of life is having met Nelson Mandela in 1992, and he actually served on our advisory board. And I had a chance to meet him in New York. And I went up to him in our brief sort of encounter, and I asked him, as you negotiate the future of your country, are you thinking about how are you going to deal with your past? And he looked at me and he said, that's exactly an issue that I've been thinking about and we've been thinking about. And he called over his aide, a woman named Barbara Masakella at the time. And I had, you know, I had this sort of, I guess, presumption of writing a memo <laughs> and I gave it to his assistant. And it laid out the question of, as South Africa is negotiating this big transition, what are the models to look at? And so, of course, it was Argentina, Chile, what happened in Europe at the end of World War II. But what struck me was Mandela came back to me at the end of that reception. And there were all these great and the good. And here was I, this young guy who got invited through a friend. And he came up to me and said, I'm going to follow up with you on this because this is really important. And he did. And over the years, I was able to bring people from Northern Ireland, the Balkans, the Middle East to South Africa when he was president and after. And he would sit there and he would say to them things like, be tough on structures, be tough on institutions, but don't be tough on each other. And it had a power coming from Mandela. And we tend to forget or think, because Mandela became such this iconic figure, that what he did is used his political and moral authority to essentially create a pathway for the other side to cross and said, okay, it is up to you to cross this bridge. And I've seen less famous individuals do it in other countries. John Hume in Northern Ireland did the same thing with the IRA, meeting with them secretly in the 80s. And when his own party members found out, they wanted to expel him. And he had the same view. When you describe this scene or describe his intervention and counsel to others in conflict, how do you feel in that moment when you witness that? What's going through you emotionally? What's going through at the time, me as an American who wasn't from those countries, was, is it landing? Is it making the impact? Because, you know, it's difficult for people to change, particularly when the change you're going through as an individual, maybe as a leader, isn't reflected in the community you're from. They're not meeting the enemy face to face. And they're in that community that reinforces legitimate grievance and anger and strategy. But there's something that happens on that human level 
when you recognize your enemy is human. And so to your question, I wish Mandela was alive today. I wish a number of these leaders who are still alive, I can get on a plane and go and see them to bring this home to this country. Because now as an American caught up in this moment, I'm seeing it through a different lens. I'm seeing it through a lens of like, this shit is difficult. You know, I, I had the privilege and not appreciating it of pushing people to sit across the table from their enemy, to make peace with their enemy, literally telling families in Bosnia and Srebrenica after that they should move back into those villages and to those homes that have been rebuilt next to families that try to kill them. And I felt like I was doing the right thing. And I was. But here at this moment in this country, the last few years, I'm thinking this work is difficult. I was at a safe emotional distance from that. And the other thing you asked me about trust, I remember we brought leaders from Bahrain to Belfast a few years ago after the Arab Spring. And they were talking to people separately from Protestant, Sinn Féin, other political parties. And they would ask, do you need trust to negotiate? And independently, they all say no. If you had trust, why would you be negotiating like this? But what they say, you need to build sort of a support uh, network underneath. Recognize that you, if you had trust, you wouldn't be in this moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, this conversation about trust makes me think about this concept I've heard you talk about, the zone of discomfort. Can you explain what a zone of discomfort is and how do you get people through it? So one of my mentors is a friend of mine, Jose Maria Argueta from Guatemala. And a number of years ago, he said to me, you know, it's difficult to move people from A to Z at one moment. You need to move them from sort of A to D and then D to G. And this was without knowing the science or research, just empirically. It's very insightful because he worked in how do you bridge divides in Guatemala? How do you build trust where there was no history of trust? And what he just observed over three decades was that where people didn't know each other, where they fear the other side, you would have to bring them together where they could begin to see the other, understand the other, and predict the other's behavior. And then you have to take them through some very difficult realities that they may not accept. And he said, that's a zone of discomfort. And then you give them a landing pad, as you would put it, you know, in that A to D. Let them process it, that. And then you take them to the next level of change. So in the U.S., can you paint a picture of one of our zones of discomfort for one of our communities that needs to get from A to Z, but an A to D leap is a more appropriate path to get there? Yeah. So after the election in November, you know, we have this team working on polarization in American social divides. When 74 million people voted for Donald Trump, 10 million more than last time, a lot of people here just wanted to not erase these people, but feel like, how do you talk with them? How do you cross that divide or bridge that when they had no excuse in voting for this man four years later, right? And I remember as we looked into it, we recognized that there was a lot of fear in this recent election on both sides. And one thing, there's a lot of research on what they call status threat. And so for a lot of people who, let's say, supported Donald Trump, there's fear of the changing cultural demographic terrain of the United States. And that is rooted in human psychology, because you can see that in Northern Ireland among Protestants as the demographic changes, or in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians, or in South Africa when apartheid was ending. At the root, that human predictive brain 
is trying to navigate its environment. And when things are changing in a profound way, and leaders don't come along to help them navigate that, to change and update that mental model that gets set up, it becomes very difficult for people. What often happens is populist demagogues come along and turn legitimate fear into grievance then gets weaponized into something else. And so when I look at this country, the reality is, and there's research in this, white Christian evangelicals think of themselves as a persecuted, prosecuted community in this country. And it's very difficult for people outside that community, particularly on the left, to accept that. So what it means, I think, for the left is to recognize, you know what, these are legitimate psychological, almost biological states of mind. And, you know, and on the right, I've seen people respond when we talk about status threat. And they feel, well, that's collective blame. You're essentializing us. You're thinking we all feel that way. And so there are all these sort of landmines right now in the United States because we're so divided. And because Donald Trump was such a personality type and was so outrageous on so many levels, it put more oxygen and fuel into that space. And so any notion of reaching across these divides is seen as compromise, is seen as selling out. And yet what experience in other countries have shown and not just the Mandela's and many others, is, you know, we have to find a way to bridge this. It doesn't mean you compromise. It doesn't mean it's unity for the sake of, you know, everybody get along. It's about clarity. It's about being clear about what's going on, being clear at this moment, being clear of how we got to this moment as a country, but also where we want to go together in this country. One of the frustrations I've had in talking about bridging divides and outreach and empathy and understanding someone else's journey is I have perceived, I'm using my words so carefully, Tim, but I have perceived that the folks who I'm associated with on the left have been doing a lot of that, <laughs> trying to do a lot. Let's go talk to a Trump voter. Let's get inside their head. Let's get inside of their psychology. Let's superhumanize them. And I wonder if you can take me through a zone of discomfort exercise, maybe it's shorter, that looks at things from a different perspective. Because I've also heard I've, and felt a lot of anger around Black Lives Matter. It's a terrorist group. Is, this, is there a zone of discomfort example that will help me and others understand this phenomenon around the divide over Black Lives Matter in the U.S.? Is there an easier question, Baratunde? No. Uh, <laughs> you know, here's the thing. Somebody asked me uh, sort of a similar question the last month or so after what happened at the U.S. Capitol. And I said, we really have to be as precise as we can with words and what we're saying. And what's really interesting, in the world of sort of conflict resolution, there's a distinction that I and others make between conflict resolution and conflict transformation. To resolve a conflict... Think of the Dayton Peace Accords in Bosnia, or the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, or the one that ended the Salvadoran Civil War. That's about a brutal civil war, people dying, people being killed, uh, people disappearing. We need to end this. It's triage. And the way you achieve that is getting people across the table to, in a sense, have unity for that moment of change. But it doesn't fully transform the underlying dynamics of the society. So that conflict resolution is about unity for the sake of that agreement. But conflict transformation requires clarity. How did we get here at this moment? 
And where do we go together? Because if we're going somewhere in the future where it's going to be a democracy, a more representative democracy, a more inclusive democracy, a more shared democracy, we need to understand how we got to this moment as a nation and a community. And in that clarity, you need to create a space for people to come together to feel like they're being heard. And it's very difficult. Take South Africa, where 90% of the population was black, Malaysian, other communities. I mean, that was a brutal regime. But what was interesting that the African National Congress leadership, even before Mandela got out of prison, people like Albie Sachs and others would say that we came to realize that we had to understand where the Africana people were coming from historically. Like, how did they set up a system of apartheid? What experience did they go through to justify setting up something like this? What were they afraid of? This dynamic they created. And they came to realize, they said, that they suffered at the cleansing and genocide in the Boer War under the British. And they had no country to go back to. Unlike white South Africans of a British background, literally had a passport in their back pocket. So the Afrikaners had no country to go to, so they're going to fight to the very end. And the point is, is that the ANC leadership, in a sense, went through a zone of discomfort, saying, we are absolutely clear that this is about liberation and resistance, that this is a brutal dictatorship that's been dehumanizing. But what does the future look like? Are we going to share this place? Or are they going to flee? Well, these people have nowhere to go to. So they're going to stay, which means we have to figure out together how we're going to live in this country and share it. And it may not be kumbaya, everybody come together. No, it's, it's literally uncomfortable. It's, <laughs> right? it's, it's why it's called a zone of discomfort. It is. We have to share this country together. And so a shared future has to be built on a shared understanding of how we got here. And that's about clarity. And that clarity requires discomfort. It requires a discomfort like, you know what? I may want, and, and from the other side, Mandela, I mean, I believe that the reason why Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela got divorced within a year or two is they lived in two realities of apartheid South Africa. He was in prison for 27 years and had a lot of time to reflect. She was in the social reality of apartheid South Africa, where day in, day out, she could find no moment, no chance to really sit back and say, what is the nature of the struggle about? And where do I want to go with this? Right? And I've seen this, by the way, in other settings where leaders in prison said they had to make sense of their experience to figure out where we want to go from here. And so the zone of discomfort in this country is, you know, we have to have a reckoning, but I also think we have to have a summoning. We have to summon people to something else. Because black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, this is our country. It's a country where what connects us is a common citizenship, but not a common participation in it. I mean, there's real legitimate, I don't have to tell you this, suffering and loss and need for healing and repair and dehumanization of Native Americans and, and African Americans and other communities for a long period of time. And yet we also have other communities who either legitimately have had real loss over time or have narratives in their communities of loss. And so I think that's the point of clarity and the discomfort. The, and I don't mean just the left and the right. Americans across all have to sit back and say, 
This is a defining moment. This is about transformation. Otherwise, we're in, we're in deep trouble. Sorry to be so pessimistic, but I do think that that is what's required at this time. And I, you know, I think of myself as progressive and liberal. My whole life is about social justice. But there are moments in this country in the last few years where I tell my friends, you know what? You got to give people the capacity to change. Those who don't change, you start to figure out who are the people who will never change, and now you've identified them further. Then there are those who are fearful of change because change is difficult. And then more than not, most people want to change, and they have to go through discomfort. But in recognizing that takes a discomfort because we want that certainty about what this process should look like. And that's why I say that reckoning is so important, but it's also summoning at the same time. How do we both reckon and summon? Because reckon is dealing with a reality of the past and the today, but summing what to the future? And I think that's that moment we're in as a nation. You've reflected a few times on bringing your work home. You've done a lot of work outside of the U.S. And you've, it sounds to me like you feel a sense of urgency about what's happening in the U.S. right now. Do you ever feel a sense that the divisions and conflicts in the U.S. are irreconcilable? I don't. Um, I do at, at moments. There are deep divides and there's anger on all sides. And I say all sides, it's not just both sides. I think we have to go through stages. You know, I was saying earlier about clarity and unity. I think it sounds good for some, but unity is actually a disservice to talk about right now. So one is clarity, the other is coexistence or dissent. Recognizing and living with difference and dissent is gonna be really important because people are not gonna change quickly and overnight. There are really these entrenched positions. Um, you have media platforms whose economic incentive is to drive that. And so we have to be realistic about those. And so what do we do in the interim is I think find ways to live with difference. And I don't mean just cultural and demographic difference, political difference. It's okay to be dissenting. It's okay to you know, have profound disagreement because at the core, democracy is about managing difference. And I think that's what we have to do here is to say it's not an irreconcilable. Why? Because what's the alternative? It is find ways to live with difference, to manage that, and find ways to reconnect and to see how much we have in common, and then together figure ways to define a country that reflects the reality of what we are and where we're going in a positive direction. After the break, we fast forward to this current moment we're living through and dig deep into Beyond Conflict's U.S.-based work to understand how we can apply the lessons they've learned abroad. Plus, our in-studio virtual audience talks with Tim about ways we can counter conflict and extremism in our communities. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
The wait is over. The Shy returns May 10th on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com/theshy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So, Tim, you and Beyond Conflict's work has historically centered on these facilitating these in-person cross-party dialogues. Over time, you've then layered in a lot more behavioral science and neuroscience to understand what drives division in the first place. What have science and research taught us about social conflict? What have they taught you? You know, this year is the 30th anniversary of Beyond Conflict. And for the first 20, 25 years we would go into countries that were trying to imagine how do you go from dictatorship to democracy or from conflict to peace. Hmm. And so having done that for a number of years, we saw some successes, but we were also coming up against a lot of intractable conflicts and a lot of fragile peace agreements. Hmm. And the question that I and my colleagues asked is, what are we missing about the human experience? What are we missing about the struggles that, that people go through? A Guatemalan friend of mine and a, and a mentor said to me, you know, exclusion is the main driver of conflict. And I was like, okay, how does that play out in the human brain and our cognition and our emotion? Because if we understand that better, could we actually be more effective in framing strategies, interventions, and ways to advance real transformative change and peace? And that's why we started looking at uh, brain and behavioral science. And I'll, I'll just maybe uh, quickly end there by saying Jerry Adams was one of the, he was president of Sinn Féin, which was the political party associated with the IRA. Yeah. Though he won't admit it publicly, he was one of the top IRA leaders. And I had him come to a course I was teaching at a university here a few years ago. And a student sat across the table and said, how do you make peace with somebody you may have tried to kill? Or they may have killed somebody very close to you. And he paused and he said in a very thick Belfast accent, he said, it's tough to make peace with a humiliated partner. And there was a retired neuroscientist sitting in the room who had been observing the class. And he came up and he said, you know, I've heard Adams talk about humiliation. I heard somebody from the Middle East talk about fear and empathy and what it is to be a victim and things that are sacred. He said, you know, there's a lot of brain science research behind that. And I said, what do you mean brain science? Because I knew from either social psychology, what I observed, what I experienced growing up, and I thought, tell me more. And the key thing he said that got me on this path 
He said, well, he was in his 70s at this point. He said, speaking as a scientist, we are not rational beings with emotions. In fact, we're just the opposite. We're emotionally based beings who can only think rationally when we feel that our identities, as we see them, not you or others, as we see them, are understood and valued by others. Once we feel understood, he said there's a deep psychological, almost biological necessity to feel understood, then literally we can begin to engage rationally with others. And that's what put me on the journey to look at this. Yeah, that's powerful, man. It's just this like a prerequisite. You know, there's, there's an emotional safety, emotional acknowledgement, psychological acknowledgement, prerequisite before you can enter some of these higher levels. So in terms of, were you able to look back at some of your previous interventions that maybe didn't stick? You talk about these kind of fragile peace agreements. Was that, in hindsight, a clearly missing element? The emotional side, the neurological side? You know, it was clear that these emotions were playing an outside outsized role in making peace and reconciliation possible, like intractable conflict. In the last negotiations with the PLO under Yasser Arafat, when Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright were trying to negotiate the Camp David Accords, it collapsed at the last minute. And the two most difficult issues were the right of Palestinian refugees to return and the future of Jerusalem as a sacred city for Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And years later, I found that there's research coming out of brain and behavioral science that those things that we hold sacred to us, and I don't mean just religious terms, but things that have a profound, almost sacred importance to us, are processed in a different region of the brain than utilitarian decisions we make. Mm. And there's even neuroimaging that has confirmed that this gets processed differently and is, in a sense, more entrenched cognitively in the brain when people are still being forced to compromise things that are above compromise. And the research found is a simple but powerful gesture of symbolic concession. I understand how sacred this is to you. I understand how important this is to you. Actually creates a cognitive shift where people feel like now I'm being understood. And it goes back to what the scientist said a few years earlier about Jerry Adams' comment. We have a deep need to feel understood if we're able to navigate the world and connect with others. That That is profound, and you've anticipated where I might have gone with that, which is, does that mean you didn't need to fully concede to their perspective or that sacred, deeply held belief if that's anathema to your own? Uh, and But you use the, the phrase symbolic concession that we need to feel understood, even if we're not completely fully understood. That kind of opens the doorway. Am I interpreting yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, that's why... Understanding science is not to make it more complex, but to decomplexify it, in a sense, if there's such a phrase. Mm -hmm. And that is, what we all know without understanding all the structures of the brain is we need to feel understood. We relax, our stress levels go down, and by the way, there's research that affirms that. And we can begin to think about hearing others. Yeah. But it, it doesn't mean, to your point, that I have to accept and endorse your point of view. It just means I understand what this means for you. And Bill Clinton, um, I had reached out to him about a year ago for this work we were doing on status threat and identity threat in the United States. I said, it's become really existential threat in this country right now. How do we navigate this? When fear of change, demographic, economic, has been weaponized, and let's be honest, particularly by the right for decades now, how do we deal with this? And he said that when he was running for governor of Arkansas in the early 80s, he would always ask himself, how do I get on the right side of fear? Hmm. 
How do I acknowledge it? How do I have people feel like, oh, somebody's understanding me without validating it? Right. It's like, I hear you. Now let's move in this direction. Yeah. And that's what we need to do. Understand doesn't necessarily mean agree with. Bingo. Which is a relief. Now, I know you and Beyond Conflict have been doing deeper work recently, looking at how Democrats and Republicans, for example, uh, misperceive one another and their viewpoints. Can you walk me through those studies and what you're finding there? Sure. So leaders from other countries that I had worked with from South Africa, Central America, the Middle East, Northern Ireland, they had been telling me for fully a decade beforehand, oh, you need to work in your own country. They, like canaries in a coal mine, could sense where things were going. And they would know. You know, they've been through it. And they would know. You know, they know how to navigate these environments and they pick it up in the ether. Like, uh-oh, that language is really unhealthy. There are real problems emerging back home. And they were picking it up when Barack Obama became president in 2008. And so what we did was we now had this relationship with researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and other schools. And we said, okay, with some funding, let's understand how polarization is being shaped at this moment, and what can we do about it? And so that report you mentioned, we called America's Divided Mind, done by my colleague Emile Bruneau, who you met a few years ago, who unfortunately passed away from cancer and he's deeply missed. Mm. We looked at how polarization is being shaped psychologically, and what we found, it was becoming more identity-based. When that happens, a whole range of unconscious psychological processes come online that only serve to drive us further apart. And when you say identity-based as opposed to idea-based, right? So you and I could have a strong disagreement about a policy, or we could have a strong disagreement about each other's value or validity or humanity. Is that the distinction? Yeah, I mean, in the 1950s, I had to dig up and read over the last few years a lot of political science about polarization. And political scientists in the United States said that the United States was not polarized enough because the Republican and Democratic parties were bigger tents mm. and there were fewer choices for Americans of different political interests or persuasions to vote, unlike the UK or other countries that had broader political structures. Right. And therefore, with more polarization, like a local election is a polarization process, right? Because you have people from different sides competing. That's natural and healthy. But when it becomes the way it's become in this country, where all these other distinctions, class, race, culture, geography, get aligned under Democratic or Republican, more white Christian evangelicals are under the Republican, more people of color, professionals, educated, urban are under Democrats. I mean, you can see a whole series of how these new alignments have happened. Yeah. Then it takes on an identity piece. Okay. And it goes from we're citizens, quote unquote, of a nation, maybe with profound disagreements, and we don't really feel this democracy maybe fully works for all of us. But when it becomes an us versus them, then you are a profound threat okay. to my community and identity. The good news is that we did these surveys nationally, and we would ask representative Democrats or Republicans, so a Democrat, where are you on immigration and open borders? Well, we need immigration reform, but we need a process that works and allows people in. But a lot of Democrats were in the middle. Republicans, we need stronger restrictions, but a lot were in the middle. But if you'd ask a Democrat, where do you think the Republicans are on immigration? Oh, they want the borders completely closed. Republican, where do you think the Democrats are? They want them completely open. Right. So on big issue after big issue, and on how much you think the other side dislikes you, mm. and even more concerning, dehumanizes you, it's up near 
So we sat back and said, wait a minute, a huge chunk of the country, probably close to 50%, are overestimating by 50% how far apart they are. And all that does is further drive this tribal polarization. And perception is reality. So if I believe that, I'm going to behave based on that. So what happens when you tell people, actually, you're not as far apart as you thought? What comes of that? So we actually, in the last year and a half, we hired a filmmaker. I said, let's create a short video, take the research on these misperceptions, and get representative Trump and Biden supporters, ask them the same question, mm -hmm. and capturing their response, it was like a holy S moment, like, you're kidding. Well, where am I getting at my information? Right. Well, what about this? What about that? That video, we then tested, and then Stanford tested in a big strengthening democracy challenge a few months ago with 32,000 people. Out of 250 interventions, it was rated number one for reducing support for political violence in the United States and partisan animosity because it corrected these misperceptions. And yeah. Americans do not get information that says, you know what? Yes, we are divided. We have some profound issues to address, but there's much more overlap and when people know that, and I've seen this in other countries, it's what makes peace possible in deeply divided places, yeah. that you have allies that you may have never imagined. How much did the propensity toward political violence decrease? How did you measure that? We followed up, I think it was every quarter, and asking certain questions to see, you know, does this change your view about the use of political violence? Um, a warmth thermometer in terms of how warm you feel. Hmm. Uh, do you feel like a greater sense of being understood? And so forth and so on. And what we found is that all of these measures improved because people sat back and said, you're not asking me to compromise. You're not giving me a symbolic concession. You're not saying that I could potentially betray my tribe by saying, well, I have something in common with you because there are all these cognitive, not just explicit, but implicit forces. Yeah that are telling us, don't do this. But this is simple. It's neutral. It's saying, wait a minute, you have more in common than you ever imagined. And think of that in a family situation. Yeah. If you thought a colleague or a friend really disliked you, and then you found out, no, it's just the opposite, how does it make you feel emotionally? Relief. <laughs> you know? Relief. Yeah. Also, I need to get my hands on that video and plug it into the TikTok algorithm for everybody. No, please uh, do. Hijack the, fo the Fox News airwaves and make sure that those viewers see, you know, it's, if it's the number one out of 250 interventions, we need to scale that. And I would love to follow up with you on that because we even did research on misperceptions around democratic norms. Yeah. Now, I will say that after January 6th and Donald Trump, I assumed that Republicans had decreased their support for democratic norms and principles. Our recent research with colleagues in Chicago found that Democrats, Republicans still today equally value democratic norms and principles, but if they think the other side doesn't, they're willing to violate them. And it's the same 50% gap. Yeah. So getting these out at scale is what we're now looking at doing. Well, when I hear the rhetoric of the people trying to protect the election and showing up with guns, their verbalized rationale is, well, because the Democrats are going to steal it. Bingo. So because they're going to violate the norm, that gives me an excuse to violate the norm. And then Democrats see that and like, well, they're violating the norm. So we got to. So it becomes this escalation. Um, I know that you are also working on a, a more current intervention and process. Where do we go from here? Uh, you're calling it. Tell us about that. 
Sure. So, you know, I mentioned that our sort of traditional historic work in other countries was bringing together former enemies across profound divides at different levels. Yeah. But then I realized on a personal level for the last five or six years, when things started to go off the rail here in my country, our country, mm-hmm. it has a different emotional resonance. It's like, okay. wow, my history, my identities, my narratives, my family members, who I can talk to, not talk to. And it's very different. And I realized I was at a profound um, safe distance. Right. So over the last year, I reached out to a lot of these friends. And I said, I need to bring you now to my country. Mm-hmm. The way we would go to these other countries, we need to bring it to this country. And not just in Washington, but across the country to meet with people across divides, whether it be community activists, bridge builders, local elected officials, mega churches, small synagogues, because there are few Americans who have the direct experience of navigating such a profound crisis in their own country. And that we also lack a historical memory. You know, I talk with my partner Elizabeth about this a fair amount. As the World War II generation, you know, leaves us, we are collectively losing a direct connection to the worst versions of some of this division and the scale of political violence, like taken to the maximum and to the extreme. So we have a temporal gap to try to close, but also, and to your point, spatial, when you can bring people who've been through it, who know the worst of this and also the healing that's possible on the other side, bring them home here to, to your territory. What does that look like, Tim? How are they received? So in June, we took this most recent report and I brought Rolf Meyer, who was the key negotiator in the talks to end apartheid. So this is a man who grew up as a white Afrikaner who thought that apartheid was not only good for whites, but for blacks early in his career. Shocking, but that was the mental model of the world he had. Hmm. He then went through a process of recognizing the system is corrupt and I need to do what I can to end it. So he became the chief negotiator in the talks to end apartheid. And he said, I came to realize over a period of years, not only the corruption of apartheid, but what was in the mindset of my community to even set the system up. So we went to Washington and met with some of the key congressional leaders on the Democratic side because we tried to get some Republicans, but not at that time interested. And we met with key congressional leaders and they were old enough to know the role that Rolf played. But talking about identity threat, social status threat in this country, it had a huge impact on the members of Congress in the meeting. And the question was, well, where do we go from here? And Rolf and I were talking afterwards in country after country. And even Monica McWilliams, who founded the Women's Coalition in Northern Ireland, said, we all got to the point that there needs to be a better way. And that's when these leaders in other countries and we are often involved, but not the only ones, would go to these other countries and come back and say, wow, if they can do it, we can do it. Because this is a shared human challenge of how do you sit across the table from your enemy? Can you forgive? And we need it here. So I want to shift us into uh, bringing in some of the questions that people submitted. We've got uh, Mark texted, are you trying to seek middle ground with those who may view the world differently than you? Or is your goal only really reached when they have 100% bought into your political viewpoints? We can't expect, nor do we need, to convince everybody of somebody's point of view. What you need to do, and it's country after country, most people are not political. A Democrat, Republican, I'm aggressive, a MAGA supporter. They think about what am I going to do today for my family, my work, and all these things that are in front of me. And yet they care about politics, many of them, not all. And that's where the vast majority are. And they just want the system to work. Yeah. So we don't have to win everybody over. 
We just have to win enough people over to say, we live in a diverse country. We live in a multiracial nation, which is not fully a multiracial democracy. And the only way we're going to address these shared problems is finding what we have as shared problems today to address. Mm-hmm. Because our research shows that Americans have far more in common than they imagine. And how do we build off that without people feeling that they have to give up their core identities or interest? Thank you. We're going to continue this conversation. We have some live questioners queued up. Damon Williams, uh, you're up first. And go ahead and state your question. Um, I'm Damon Williams from Memphis, Tennessee. And you've kind of touched on it already. But what I was really wondering, you know, the what it looks like is just different world perspectives. And I've seen it and I've had in my own experience where two people will look at the same thing and literally see two different things. So how do you how do you have some kind of reconciliation with someone who is experiencing a completely different reality? One of the simplest and best interventions I've learned from my colleagues in in science is context, is that our brains evolved to be predictive. We're constantly trying to predict our social and physical environment. And if we don't know or have experienced the lived experience of others, We can access it through context. Oh, I know what that feels like in my community. I know what that feels like in my experience. So how do you contextualize something? I'll give you a concrete example. And it may not even completely connect to your point, but I think it's related. So there was a statue of uh, Abraham Lincoln in Boston that was a replica of the one in D.C. that was built about a decade after his assassination. And he was standing on a pedestal with two freed slaves looking up to him unshackled. And even at the revealing of this in Washington, Frederick Douglass said, this is inappropriate. Uh, It's dehumanizing. So two years ago, the city of Boston decided to take it down. And a friend of mine I went to college with, who's Irish-American, called me up. And he's sort of center conservative, said, is Abraham Lincoln now being canceled? (laughs) And what I said to him is, you know, Bob, um, imagine if there was a statue of Queen Victoria or Oliver Cromwell in Boston, before I could finish, he said, take that statue down. It connected to his lived experience because there are these narratives in the Irish-American immigrant community of the famine and what Queen Victoria did and what Oliver Cromwell had done earlier. The notion of a statue representing those two is so abhorrent that he all of a sudden contextualized, well, I guess I can understand now what that would mean for someone who's African-American. And from a research point of view, a simple intervention like that, and they followed up, can last a lifetime. Hmm. That's fascinating. Oh, I want to follow up on everything, but we have so many more in the queue. I want to give the keep the, passing the mic. Allison Mosqueda, please go ahead and state your question. Thanks. Hi, I'm Allison Mosqueda. I am here in Denver, Colorado. And I work in public health across the entire state of Colorado in lots of different communities that all have very unique their own cultures, their own belief systems, lots of political differences. Um, And I I work in a program where we all have the similar goal, but we have a lot of different ideas about how to get there. And I really find that one way to do that is is similar to what I think you've been saying, is find those foundations of what we all agree upon as the basis of the conversation and build from there. And it's taken me as a young professional a long time to learn these skills. I was never taught these things. So I was just really thinking about my two young children and concern for them. Like, how do we teach young kids and young people to prepare them to be in a world where these kinds of conversations are going to be really critical and important and have have this healthy level of conflict when 
what they see role modeled around us right now is is not that. What many of the South Africans, for example, would tell people in other countries is process before substance. In a deeply divided setting, to go to the issues that divide people is a recipe for disaster because then people don't listen. And it's not just from a political or an explicit, it's, it's much a psychological mindset. I don't know you. I don't trust you. Why should I trust you? And the process piece, to me, the common ground that we need to lay, whether it's in the family or school or in, or in other settings, and we've been trying this, by the way, with some of these different groups over the last few years, is laying out these processes. Let's talk about how our brain navigates the world. Let's talk about common experiences we have and what it feels like to be marginalized, humiliated. You know, what is it to feel human fragility? What is it to feel privileged? Do you feel privileged? And so we take out the sort of precursor, white fragility, white uh, privilege, because I think of in the context of Northern Ireland, if the Catholics said to the Protestants, what we need to do is talk first about your unionist or Protestant fragility or privilege, those conversations would have gone nowhere because you've already had this deep identity-based conflict where those identity markers play a much more salient, important role than core political and economic interests. I mean, it's very clear if that book that came out several years ago, What's the Matter with Kansas, is people will always, you know, they say it in organizations, culture trumps process. Well, culture and identity will trump everything because that's what's deeply sort of ingrained in our evolution is how we navigate the world is on these identity markers. Hmm. And so if we could think about organizing conversations in a more neutral, human-centered term, as opposed to a Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, Catholic, Protestant, what is it that we all share? I want, I want children's videos of the things that you've already launched into the world. Um, and and we'll, I'll just flag this now. I think there will be tension between speaking truth and being effective in your linguistic approach to preserve an open door. Right. Uh, and so if we're just going to talk vaguely about privilege and not say white privilege or supremacy and not say white supremacy, what's the trade-off in terms of completeness versus openness that the other would even have to entering that conversation? Baratuni, I agree with yeah. you totally about privilege. The thought is, how do you have a conversation about the nature of privilege and then say, so in this context, could you feel privileged by the color of your skin? As opposed to not even going there. It's to be able to have people think about, all right, I've already sent in the conversation of, of privilege in my brain. Right. And I'm already engendering in my mind, oh, I know or I don't feel privileged. But could you feel privileged here? Mm -hmm. And then you're creating a cognitive pathway for people to engage yeah. something. You're walking them up to it rather than slamming them. Yeah, you're walking them up to it. As opposed to, to the way I learned how to swim, where they just threw me in the deep end and said, you know how to swim. I'm like, I guess I do now if I want to live. Thanks, Teach. Uh, all right, Mary Pearl coming uh, online. And uh, go ahead and state your, your question and thought. Hello, my name is Mary Pearl. I'm dog sitting at my brother's house on Cape Cod. <laughs> and I'm hearing that Tim thinks we have to start where we are today to have these conversations, but I just have to ask, don't we have to have a, a reckoning with our history of systemic racism and violence and indigenous slaughter? It seems to me there's a deep psychological, strong connection between white supremacy and hatred of indigenous people from our past that just infuse our present. So how can we get to a new place of respect and understanding if we can't acknowledge the history 
Yeah, I mean, that is such a key question here, and it's a key question pretty much every country I worked in in the past. Um, and they're also often very divided and, and difficult and never completely resolved. My personal view is that it's very difficult to talk about reconciling a people until you reconcile a history. And the question is, how do you do that in such a way that it advances real change? And I think you have to break it down as, one is to acknowledge what has happened and what are the ways in which you can do it actually is meaningful to the communities that need that history acknowledged and what is the repair today you know, for their descendants and the legacy of four centuries of blatant dehumanization to people of color in this country. I mean, Native Americans in particular and African Americans. So those are absolutely essential. The question then becomes, how do you move those forward in a country that's deeply, not just divided politically, but is with the recognition of what happened to Native Americans and African Americans who were brought here, is all these other immigrant communities, Asians, Latinos, Muslims, and others who have had Irish-American, Italian-American when they came over, were really dehumanized, and they have these narratives in their families. And so what I've been doing for the last couple of years is reaching out to the people who led these truth commissions in many countries around the world and say, what can we bring to this moment in the United States? How do we stage this? How do we do it in such a way that it can really be a process of healing and transformation. Yeah. I have a, a little trick I learned on this one, Mary, and I think the history can be a real third rail. Um, and to Tim's earlier point, context matters. And so how you walk people up to it. And because I end up talking to a lot of white people, uh, I'm the white people whisperer in terms of the race conversation sometimes. I try to, I tell a personal story of my own um, emotional challenge with accepting the painful history, right? In my own family history with the heroic figure, you know, my mother, who a lot of people know of. And I'm like, yes, but also there were these other things about her and they created challenges for me. And there's a longer version of it. But essentially, like I hook them in with the mom was fallible story <laughs> and tell my journey of healing on the other side of that and how I actually have a deeper knowledge of my mother through this acknowledgement and thus a deeper love. And that's what I want for us and the country. And so it's entering through a point, not of lecture and shame positioning, but rather confession really first. <laughs> um, here's my experience. Here's how hard it hurt. Here's what I found on the other side. I want you to have that same transformation, that same journey, that same taste of freedom. And for the people who've I've had direct access to, that's a much more welcome pathway into a real hard conversation than your daddy owns slaves. You are a white supremacist. You know, like it just doesn't doesn't quite do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Can I can I add one quick thing, Baratunde? And that is the, the challenge we have in this country is that the truth commissions that emerged, the truth and reconciliation commissions from Argentina and Chile, and then picked up by South Africa, were mostly state-run dictatorships, and then they had a lot of people supporting it, but they were institutionalized, legally set up state dictatorships. Mm. What we're seeing from Northern Ireland to the United States is mostly there are elements of the state and history in states who still today do things that are horrific, but it's a lot of civilian on civilian, if you know what I'm saying, yeah. right? And yeah. so nobody has quite figured out what is the process 
in a deeply divided community that is hyperpolarized to come to terms with this. And people would go to the model in South Africa, and the South Africans went to Argentina and Chile. And the benefit of that is Afrikaners and white people could say, ah, it was the system, yeah. right? Or in Argentina, Chile, it was the military dictatorship. Here, it's right? Us. It's people. <laughs> it's, it's us. us. Yeah. And that's, that's what I struggle with because of the identity-based nature of our divisions. It makes it so much more difficult. So I agree it needs to be done, but let's figure out a way to do it with the tools we have to make it meaningful and transformative. Um, Andrea, we are about to call on you. I don't know if it's Andrea or Andrea. You will let us know. Go ahead and state the question that you have. I'm Andrea. I'm from uh, Washington State. And I was just wondering when you have two people who, when you're in a conversation with somebody where the conversation is becoming not useful anymore, what kind of linguistic tactics do you have to get the conversation going in a positive direction? I've struggled with this, and it was more difficult because it's my own people I know and <laughs> so forth. But here's what I've tested and learned more anecdotally. When somebody said to me recently that the 2020 election was stolen, that Joe Biden is illegitimate, and that Donald Trump is the best president we've ever had, rather than getting angry and outraged and get into the issues, I said, well, I can maybe understand why you feel that way. And what it did was I could see there was like a change in this person's countenance. What he was expecting was me to come back in an aggressive way. I said, I can understand why you feel that way. What I didn't say was, I agree with you. You're wrong. Don't you realize what he stand for? Don't you realize what happened? And what it forced him to do was a bit of cognitive dissonance to rethink, so, huh, what does this mean? And I could see it going on. And I had the benefit of speaking to some brilliant social psychologist ahead of time saying, I want to try this. And they said it creates cognitive dissonance because people come in with an expectation that you're going to act and, and speak in a certain way. And then I didn't want to then at that point, because I knew I would see this person continue on the conversation. I wanted him to sit with, I understand you. I mean, it's almost like if you're keeping them engaged, they're not storming the Capitol, right? And, and so if, if that's the energy you have, and again, Tim said this already, that's not everybody's job. But if you find yourself in that situation and you want to try it, um, I think it can be worth a shot. You also can't change most of us, are not in a position to change someone's mind if we don't have a relationship with them. And so preserving the link is also preserving the opportunity to move people across that link and to be moved, you know, in, in, to some degree. But if we just have a counter energy and a severing of relationship, then we're severing one of the pillars of how to citizen, which is to invest in relationships. Um, and we're sort of, we're losing an opportunity to potentially persuade or change or shift that may come later. We got one more live question, uh, Deborah Shetka. My name is Deborah, and I am in Reno, Nevada. So my question is this, I've been thinking about how polarized and divided our country is, and it troubles me deeply. And so what can I do? You know, I call a service center and I talk to a customer service agent and I try to be extra nice. I deal with people in the grocery store and try to be extra nice. And that's the only thing I've been able to come up with. And it's kind of a nice thing to do, but it feels like it's not enough. What else can we do? Or is being extra nice to everyone we encounter 
Uh, is that meet our standards as well? Is that going to going to give points for that? You know, I think we have to pick and choose on an individual level those relationships that we want to invest in. It could be a family member, it could be a coworker, it could be somebody that you know you have profound disagreement, but they will be in your life in some way, and you want a decent relationship. On a broader scale, what I've seen and and recommend is be engaged citizens. You know, step out of your silos. Look for those moments where you can actually do something that crosses divides. I mean, if there's one lesson that all these leaders from profound divides in other countries who've been through the shit, to put it bluntly, say is you've got to find ways to live together and cooperate because the alternative is really bad. The other thing is norms play an outsized role in shaping behavior. The research showed in behavioral science that actually focusing on hearts and minds has very little impact on behavior as much as norms do. In fact, people's hearts and minds will follow to shape to their new norm. And think of those leaders and institutions that we want to elevate, whether it be a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, or cultural figures who have the capacity to shape, shape new norms. When I think of John McCain, in 2008, when that woman came up and said, you know, candidate Barack Obama was not an American, what did John McCain do? He took the microphone and said, no, I'm sorry, miss, that's incorrect, that's wrong. That has a big influence. We need to be finding people, particularly on the yeah, Republican yeah, side, yeah. who are willing to step up and do the right thing. And I think that can shape an environment that can begin to bring the temperature down. Because one thing we see, and again, I've seen this in other countries. People don't like to live their lives with this much toxicity in the environment. And, you know, there are some who benefit from it and some who find it very entertaining and energizing, but the vast majority, yeah, not the most. But not the most, but not most of us. And I think that's, that's a good common ground to reestablish. And we can all agree, even if we don't share the factual reality, we share that emotional exhaustion reality. And that is a possible bridge uh, as well. Uh, guns, Tim. We got to talk about guns. I think the context for increasing uh, language around dehumanization and anti-democratic norms and openness to political violence, it hits differently in the U.S. because we have so many guns per capita here. And so the fears of violence are justified in ways that they might not be in other places with just a lot of newspapers talking a lot of smack. Do you have any research experience focus on the special relationship that we have with guns in the U.S. and the unique challenges that creates for reversing this spiraling, escalating threat. And it's horrendous to see the amount of guns and the gun culture we have in this country. You know, I mentioned earlier that things that we hold to be sacred to us are processed in a different part of the brain than other utilitarian calculations. So I wrote a piece after Sandy Hook, six months, eight months after Sandy Hook, looking at sacred values in gun control, mm. and recognize that after seeing a failure of gun legislation after Sandy Hook, it actually got worse. What are we missing? Is there a different way to frame the protection of children and a different way to frame a conversation with those gun owners who really think it's like a sacred value? And I'll be happy to share that, and you can link it, but that got a lot of interest. And What's the answer? The, I, <laughs> you know... I don't know the answer, my friend. And yeah. Um, yeah. it's deeply embedded. You know, I said to somebody, we never demobilize as a nation from the American Revolution. <laughs> wow. And that notion of militias 
and the right to bear arms has never been reformed mm. and changed. Yeah. We, um, we ask all of our guests, uh, how do you define citizen if you interpret it as we do, as a verb? What does it mean to citizen to you, Tim? To engage, to know what's happening around you, mm. to show the concern about your family, your community, your colleagues, and the country you live in. Because there are a lot of well-educated people that I know, and when I ask them about the state of affairs, they're clueless. And it's not because they're stupid. They don't know. And I think it's a requirement to understand the world you live in, particularly at this moment in time. Tim Phillips, thank you for helping us see the possibilities of a world beyond conflict uh, and spending this time with us. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's hard to feel fully satisfied after a conversation like this. The kind of intractable disagreement, dehumanization, distrust, and disinformation we're up against, it's just overwhelming. And a problem this complex doesn't have a simple solution. Tim and Beyond Conflict have contributed to a constellation of approaches and insights that we can interpret and try to use in our own communities. And they've also reminded us that Comforting or not, the United States is not the first country to live through intense division. And we're definitely not the first to believe that moving beyond it is impossible. I remain most heartened by Beyond Conflict's research, which shows that we're not as far apart as we think we are. Basically, what I think Republicans think of me is far worse than what they actually think of me, and vice versa. That's important. But as far as the tactics that we use to reconnect to each other, I think Tim and Beyond Conflict, they get us part of the way there. So this is the first of two episodes we have addressing this division at the heart of our democratic culture. I'm thinking of Adrienne Marie Brown right now and this thing she said about conflict. We don't actually need to try always to get beyond conflict. Instead, we need to try to engage in generative conflict so that the disagreements we have, and we're going to always have them, don't destroy the prospect of an us and the prospect of this beautiful experiment we're in together. Time for some actions. First one, internally reflect. Think about a recent time where you strongly disagreed with someone about a political or ideological issue, whether it was online or in person. Notice where you felt that in your body. Did you feel pressure across your forehead, tension in your jaw, tightness in your stomach or chest? These are survival responses. Your brain and body are telling each other that you are in danger. The next time you're in a situation like this, try the 90-second rule created by Harvard researcher Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor. She found that it takes 90 seconds for an emotion to pass. So before jumping back into a debate that's getting your blood boiling, take 90 seconds to step out of the room or away from your phone. Breathe, pace around, hold plank position, whatever it takes to give you that time to move out of this understandable fight, flight, freeze response into an ability to better understand yourself 
and others. The more we practice this, the more we'll be able to recognize and reduce our own fear and threat responses toward people we disagree with. Next up, become more informed. We've got stuff for you to watch, read, and listen to with tickling all the senses. Check out America's Divided Mind, Beyond Conflict's short video that shows Americans aren't as far apart as we think. And if you want to take a deep dive into their research, we've linked some of Beyond Conflict's reports on the psychology that drives us apart and on renewing democracy. But if reading or watching aren't your thing, Tim recommends listening to an interview with South African leaders on how America can move beyond toxic polarization. You'll find all of these resources linked in our show notes. Finally, let's publicly participate. Bridging the political tension in our country and in our communities won't resolve itself on its own. And if you've got the bandwidth, take time to move conversations offline and invest in building real relationships with people across the aisle in your community. And you don't need to do it alone either. Check out organizations creating opportunities for Americans to come together and navigate our divides at the local level. Groups like One America Movement, Civic Genius, Make America Dinner Again, or Living Room Conversations. Find links to all these groups in the show notes. If you take any of these actions, please brag about it online and use the hashtag HowToCitizen. Also, tag our Instagram, HowToCitizen. I am always online, and I really do see your messages, so send them. You can also visit our website, HowToCitizen.com, which has all of our shows, full transcripts, actions, and more. Finally, see this episode's show notes for resources, actions, and more ways to connect. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and Row Home Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, and Elizabeth Stewart. Our lead producer is Ali Graham. Our associate producer is Danya Abdel-Hamid. Alex Lewis is our managing producer, and John Myers is our executive editor. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. Special thanks to Dustlight Productions, who arranged my first interview with Tim. Original music by Andrew Epen, with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. And our audience engagement fellows are Jasmine Lewis and Gabby Rodriguez. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio and Leila Bina. Next time on How to Citizen. Tim gave us insight into how deep-seated the discord and hatred of our political division has grown. But a lot of us are at a loss when it comes to figuring out our role in de-escalating it. And while sitting down and trying to talk things out will work for some of us, in order to rebuild relationships with those we deeply disagree with, we've got to get creative. And she said people are so deeply in their camps and there's, there's so much distrust that I think we need to remember why we enjoyed each other in the first place. Mm. And so she threw a parking lot party. And she convinced her board to rent a dunk tank. And the core of the parking lot party was Dunk the Deacon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right? And we can all come yeah, together exactly. around that. Let's just like <laughs> throw that ball. Author and facilitator Priya Parker on The Art of Gathering and the inventive ways we can practice being in community across differences. Row Home Productions. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important. Important information.